Well, uh, thank you, David, for that scripture reading. And um, I'm going to ask you guys to go ahead and start turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, specifically verse 10. But uh, first, I'd like to thank Charles for his introduction. Uh, You guys are always so kind to me uh, when I come back. And um, I just want you all to know I draw draw so much encouragement from this family every time that I return. Um, We talked uh, today in class out of uh, Proverbs 24 about the, uh, the wise counsel that we have in the body of Christ. And um, I want you to know that at Harding, I am surrounded by wise counsel. And it is a blessing to be surrounded by such strong men and women in Christ. But it does not compare to the encouragement that I draw when I return to this family. And I want you all to know that. And um, I'm so excited to be here. I've missed you guys tremendously. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe Lord willing, I'll be back here for the long term. Uh, <laughs> We're looking at one more year of school, maybe. But, uh, well, as uh, you could gather from the reading, um, we're going to be focusing on uh, priesthood today. And uh, specifically, I want to look at what it means for Jesus Christ to be our high priest. And so we'll begin reading from chapter 2, verse 10. Hebrew writer says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So, uh, since I have the pleasure of being here with you for the next two weeks, what I want to focus on here is what we see in verse 17. This nature of Christ, the role of Christ, his qualification to be our merciful and our faithful high priest. My purpose today is to try and um, break down, to unpack what it means for Christ to be our merciful high priest. What, what is entailed in his merciful nature as our priest? And next week, I'll try to unpack what it means for him to be our faithful high priest and what qualifies him to be such. But what we see here is that there is something necessary about his fleshly incarnation, his suffering in order for him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus had certain requirements to fulfill in order to be called to the priesthood. But in order to understand these things, I think it's important that we step back into the world of the Old Testament. We have to understand what the Levitical priesthood was. In order to fully understand what it means to have a high priest in Christ of a different order a new order, a better order, under a better covenant. Uh, 
And so, I'll take you back to the first high priest, Aaron. We, uh, we find in Exodus that as Moses is on the mountain, Mount Sinai, uh, God is giving him these two tablets of stone. He's giving them the commandments, um, the new covenant law for Israel. And he tells him, go down and appoint your brother Aaron and his sons to be a priest to me. Now, priesthood is a common, a common phenomenon in the ancient Near East and in the Mediterranean world. Priests were the norm in cultic practices, and they share certain functions in common. The, the central concept of priesthood in a cultic practice was this idea of mediation between the sphere of the divine and the ordinary world. A priest, through his ritual actions um, and his words, facilitates communication across the boundaries separating the holy from the profane. So you have this idea of a mediator figure between God and man. The priest represented God, or in the case of the pagan cults, gods, to the people in the splendor of their clothing, in their behavior, in their oracles, and their instruction. While in sacrifice and intercession, they represented the people to the gods. And so we find the same nature of the Levitical priesthood in this ordaining of Aaron and his sons to become mediators between the Israelites and Yahweh. But they also exhibit the glorious nature of Yahweh to the people. Because if we remember, the Israelites said when they saw the glory cloud come down on Mount Sinai, they're trembling in fear. Moses, you go speak to God. You go speak to God. And you tell us what he says. We, we, don't, we don't want to be near him. We're scared. So God can see. He says, okay. All right. If you don't want to know me face to face, well, my servant Moses will. And I'll establish a priesthood who will serve on your behalf. And so, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 28. And just bear with me. I know we're in a, um, a different world here. Uh, and while I'm, while I'm on my soapbox, <laughs> uh, I'm coming to understand how important it is that we live in the Old Testament. It is critical that we have knowledge of the old law if we are to ever understand the new law of Christ. And so I'm going to spend some time here in Exodus this morning to lay this foundation of the priesthood. And we're going to see a couple of really important things, recognizing that there are uh, such detail, God has exhibited such detail in his plan for the priesthood, for the nation of Israel, that all point towards Christ. And if we're to fully appreciate what Christ did in his incarnation, his ministry, and now his heavenly ministry, we have to understand what the old ministry was and why it was insufficient. So looking here at chapter 28 and 29, we have God commanding Moses regarding the priestly garments and then regarding the consecration of the priests. And I want to point out specifically um, um, four things. Uh, 
So, beginning of verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ethamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. He goes on to say, they shall receive gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twined linens. And like I just mentioned, this idea of clothing them in splendor, in royalty, that in some way they can represent the holiness, the majesty of Yahweh to the people. All right. But then he goes on to describe there's these specific garments that the Israelites are to make for these priests. One is a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. Now, I want you to notice specifically what is important about the breast piece, the ephod, and the turban. So we look down at verse 9. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. In verse 12, you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So if you can imagine, he's got this this ephod that he's wearing, and he's got these two shoulder pieces in which they now are going to place two onyx stones that have in the engraving of the six names on each stone of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth. And he's going to wear those on his shoulders. Now, verse 15, you shall make a breast piece of judgment. And again, in verse 21, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. Verse 29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So now, not only does he have these two onyx stones that bears the name of the sons of Israel on his shoulders, he's going to wear this breastpiece with these 12 precious stones bearing each the name of one of the sons of Israel, now covering his heart. And now we look at verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, and fasten it on the turban. Verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So try and get this image with me. This is all very symbolic. In these priestly garments, Aaron is now going to bear the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders. He's going to bear the names of the sons of Israel on his heart. And he's going to bear their guilt now, but also their holiness on his own head when he enters the tent of God, the tabernacle. I think the significance of this, and you can probably know where I'm going, but especially when we consider the Day of Atonement. One day of the year, the high priest is going to adorn these garments 
And he is going to walk into the most holy place. And he is going to make atonement for not only his sins, but the sins of the entire nation. And as he walks into the throne room of God, he is bearing to remembrance the names of all the tribes of Israel. He is bearing the nation on his shoulders. He's bearing the nation on his heart. And he's bearing the nation's iniquities on his own head. Now, you probably have heard this image in the Old Testament, um, throughout the Psalms maybe. Um, your, own, your guilt be upon your own head. Or your sin be upon your own head. And it occurred to me what that actually means. Because in the consecration of the high priest and in the sacrificial system, the Israelites, when they brought a ram, a bull, to sacrifice, or when consecration was made, they placed their hands upon its head and its throat was slit. This symbolizing your guilt is now being put upon the head of this animal. And he is bearing your guilt. He's bearing the penalty that you owe me, but I'll allow you to cast it upon him. And so at the high priest, what we see is he is bearing the guilt of the sons of Israel on his own head when he goes and makes atonement. But not only is he bearing their guilt, he is actually coming in to make supplication. He's coming in to make merciful, uh, prayerful, relent on behalf of God. He comes in, God, I bear the shame of the disgrace of our sin before you, but Lord, be merciful. Remember your promises. Remember the children that you have brought out of exile, that you brought out of slavery. Remember the promises that you've made. Forgive us. That's the role of the Aaronic priesthood. Now in Hebrews 5.2, we read, Every high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The reason that Aaron, the reason that his sons and his descendants who would come to attain, be anointed in the high priesthood, the reason they could make supplication mercifully on behalf of the nation is that they understood their own weakness. The high priest was among his brothers. He was one of them. He shared in their suffering. He shared in their iniquity. And so he can mercifully go on their behalf into the most holy place. And so with that in mind, we now look at what the Hebrews writer is trying to argue is the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Back to my text here. So we read that just like Aaron, Jesus has been called by God. Jesus does not take up this role of his own accord, but he is commissioned, he is called by God to take on this high priesthood. We read this after a different order. It's not after the Levitical priesthood. 
It's after an eternal priesthood, one in which there is no successor nor predecessor. But Jesus' consecration, unlike the one in which Aaron has placed his hands upon the head of the bull, Jesus' consecration is going to come through his own suffering and his own sacrifice. That he be made to be perfection before the Lord in his suffering. We, um, we read in Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> he who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Chapter 2 here, we see that Christ had to be made like his brothers. Christ had to empty himself of all things divine. That in bearing up with the sufferings of humanity and showing himself to be obedient through it all, he might be worthy to attain to the priesthood that is eternal. That he might be worthy to enact mercy on our behalf to the Father. The humanity, the humanity of Christ, as we read here in verse 14, that he had to share in flesh and blood. He partook of the same things. Because his help is to the offspring of Abraham, not to angels. The humanity of Christ is essential to his qualification to be a merciful high priest in the service of God. I think that um, sometimes we, we neglect to understand that Christ was a man. I think we focus a lot on his divinity. And even when we try to grasp this idea of Christ as fully human, it, it is. We're grasping. We're trying, to, we're trying to understand it, and we can't quite. And I think sometimes we look at Jesus, and we look at his ministry, and we look at the miraculous works, we look at this profound wisdom that he exudes, and we say, there's no way that he is like me. There's no way that he fully understands what it's like to be me. Look at him, he's, got, he's been given a, 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 such power from God. He endured in perfection. He can't possibly be, be like me. But the Hebrews writer here is contending with that notion. And he's saying, no, no. If Christ was not fully like you, he is not qualified to be a high priest before God. It is necessity that Christ fully took on humanity in order that he can understand our situation before the throne room of God and understand he does. And so just as Aaron served gently and mercifully on behalf of his brothers because of his own weaknesses, Jesus was also subject to all the weaknesses of the flesh. Although he remained pure and without sin. 
And thus, Christ was under no obligation to make sacrifice for himself. But rather, he became the perfect sacrifice. Once and for all. That this this perpetual system of sacrifices has now come to an end because Christ offered it one time. And it was perfect. Christ suffered obediently on our behalf. And what we see is Christ entering the throne room of God in not the earthly tent, but the heavenly one. And He too bears the ephod and the breastplate and the turban. It says, God, remember my children. Remember my people. Remember my spiritual Israel now, my church, as I stand here before you. And he wears this turban that says, Holy to the Lord. Bringing his church in mercifully before the Father. And I think that is a powerful image. It's in his full humanity that Christ has suffered every temptation and trial common to man. As much as he has suffered with man, he is able to mediate on our behalf to the Father, demonstrating his mercy. So again, to not accept the full humanity of Christ is to reject him as a high priest capable of mercifully mediating on fallen humanity's behalf. The supreme qualification of Christ as an appointed high priest lay in the reality of his sufferings, which made him perfect by obedience. And these sufferings were not limited to the cross, but to every trial and temptation common to man in his fleshly weakness. In order to act on behalf of men, Jesus had to be fully man, fully like his brothers. It's in his shared suffering with man, his intimate experience with the frailty of the human condition that he's able to act mercifully on man's behalf. And while he himself was strengthened by the Spirit of God to resist temptation, he suffered temptation nonetheless. And Christ's mercy towards his people, it's not a passive one. It's not a passive mercy. But it is active in demonstration of love and concern for his people, for those who bear his name. I appreciate this uh, quote from William Lane. He says, Our high priest suffers together with the one who is being tested and brings active help. When the lash is falling on you, he rushes in so that it falls upon him as well. When you are treated with contempt, he experiences the humiliation that you feel. When you are bruised, he feels the pain. He is able to feel our weaknesses with us. And so, here's what we have to understand. When, when Satan is breathing down your neck, when he's whispering temptation in your ear, when he's telling you to quit, to give up, to take the easy road, to join in with those evil men who entice us by their allure of success, their happiness. 
when we're rejected by our family, when we're scorned, when those closest to us betray us, when we're spat upon, rejected, humiliated, shamed, and when we cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We understand that Christ has experienced all these things as well. Amen? We experience nothing that Christ Himself has not shared with us. And this is the good news for us. Is that when those temptations and when those trials and when those heartaches and those betrayals and those sufferings come our way, we are able to cast our eyes to a merciful high priest who dwells in the heavenly tent with God the Father at His right hand with the knowledge that He is making supplication and prayer on our behalf. That He is saying, Father, be patient with them because I understand. I've been there. Lord, strengthen them with the power of Your Spirit just as You strengthen me that they may be able to bear up with every temptation that comes their way. That they might be able to endure it, just as I did. We have a high priest who shares in our sufferings. He knows what it is to be man, and he is there on our side, has our back, and stands next to us through it all. And I think of Matthew 28, this great commission. And he says, You go out, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, and lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. He does not leave us alone, but He's given us a mission and He is able to help us to endure and to be faithful and obedient to that mission. So what does that mean? And this is where we had this passage read by David earlier. Okay, chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We hold fast our confession when trials come. The stakes are high. When we have to give up that which we want to hold on to, we hold fast our confession. We recognize that we have a high priest who is sympathetic toward his people. We have a high priest that bears each and every one of our names before the throne of God. We have a high priest that declares us holy to the Lord. And in that knowledge, we confidently draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need, knowing that in Christ, the veil that separated the profane from the holy has been torn. We now have access to the face of God. And just as Moses, we see God face to face through Jesus Christ. It's through Christ that we have access to the Father. So, conclusion, perhaps there's, um, perhaps there's one, one in here, 
that does not yet know Christ. Perhaps there's some listening to this now that say, I don't, I don't, I don't understand how the God who has had all things subjected to his feet, who reigns on high, how he can possibly understand what it is to suffer in this world. Some that perhaps feel like they're unworthy. But the good news is that you do have a Savior. You do have a Lord who sits beside the God, the Creator of the universe. It says, God, be merciful toward Him. Be merciful towards her. Be patient. Be long-suffering. You can enjoy that peace. You can enjoy that knowledge by being baptized into this body, submitting yourself to the yoke of Christ, allowing Him to make supplication on your behalf. And that invitation stands. As Joseph leads us in song. Well, good morning again, everybody. Um, I don't think I got to see some of you last week, but I'm really glad I get to see you this week. And um, I'm especially glad that I happen to be here for this um, this Fellowship Sunday. Um, that's really exciting, and uh, hopefully everybody will stick around to enjoy that. Um, well, we'll go ahead and uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, where we just had our reading. And uh, for those of you who were here last week, um, I began this two-part series regarding Hebrews chapter 2, 17. And I'll go ahead and read that again. Um, regarding Jesus as our high priest. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So I wanted to explore these two weeks. What, what we understand to be Christ as qualified in his priesthood, in both these characteristics of being merciful and faithful. And so, if you remember last week, I really emphasized the humanity of Christ. The fact that Christ shares our situation. He knows our suffering. He has experienced temptation. He has experienced trial. He has experienced beating and betrayal and abuse and mocking and scorn. He understands our situation. Christ was fully man. And as he was fully man, as he suffered, he then goes into the throne room of God on our behalf. He makes prayer and supplication to the Father because he understands our situation and he can act mercifully on his children's behalf in the throne room of God. And that's encouraging. But now this week, I really want to look at what this means for Christ to have been faithful. And I'll go ahead and read this again, um, what we just read. Beginning of verse 1 of chapter 3. Uh, Therefore, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Two prophecies are being drawn from here by the Hebrews writer. And we find the first in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. Um, if you remember this account, God is rejecting the household of Eli for their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. He's rejected them. And so he sends this man of God to Eli and he declares this, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. Now one thing we have to um, notice about the nature of prophecy is that a lot of times in the Old Testament, prophecy has multiple layers of meaning. There is usually an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, but then there is a later, more ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. And sometimes this is two layers, three layers deep. And so in the context here, it seems that we're talking about Samuel who arrives in the succeeding chapter. But this is a priest who God is going to establish forever, who is going to be faithful before him, who is going to share his mind and his heart, and he's going to establish his house forever. This second prophecy comes from First Chronicles 17, if you'd like to turn there. So this is in context of David desiring to build a house for the Lord. Of course, God goes to Nathan and tells him to go to David. He says, tell David, thus says the Lord, it is not you who will build me a house to dwell in. And then he goes on to make this covenant, beginning of verse 10. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house. The Septuagint reads there, I will make him faithful in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So we have these two messianic prophecies regarding this coming priest, this coming king who would be faithful before God in a way that the Israelite priests and kings were not, could not be because of their sin nature. And so here, what the Hebrews writer is doing is he is trying to establish the superiority of Christ. And here Jesus is said to have been faithful as Moses was. Not that Moses was unfaithful, but rather than being faithful among his brothers in God's house, Jesus has declared as faithful as a son over God's house in a position of authority. So why is that significant? Well, faithfulness on the part of a servant is required. But faithfulness in the son 
is an expression of pure love. The owner of the house does not have to be faithful to the ones that live in it, but the one who is a servant in the house has to be faithful by obligation to the master. But the master of the house is faithful out of pure love for those who dwell within that house. And again, what does the Hebrews writer say? We are his house, right? Now, that love is reflected in the son's obedience to the will of the father. His faithfulness is demonstrated by obedience. Hebrews 5.8 reads, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So it was through his sufferings that Christ became merciful, as we talked about last week. But it was by his sufferings that Christ became faithful. Does that make sense? It's through his sufferings that he became merciful as he understands our situation. But by his sufferings and his endurance, he becomes faithful. John 5, uh, 19 and 20, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Get in John 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in John ten seventeen, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. John eight forty three to 44 Why do you not understand what I say? Speaking of the Pharisees. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And this is exactly why the sons of Israel were destroyed in the wilderness. Hardness of heart and an unwillingness to listen to God. Right? No matter what God does, no matter Him bringing them out of exile, right, out of slavery in Egypt, taking them across the Red Sea, dropping bread from heaven that they may live, that their sandals might not be worn out, that their clothes might not become tattered. No matter what he does, he gives them water from a rock. Destroys the idols of Egypt through these miraculous signs. No matter what he does, the Israelites don't want to listen. And this starts, like I mentioned last week, at Mount Sinai. As soon as God speaks in the glory cloud, the Israelites say, we don't want to hear from God. Moses, you go up and you listen to him and then you come and tell us. So from the very inception of this people, they have steeled their hearts, as Zechariah says, diamond hard before the Lord. They refuse to listen. It's because they're not of God. And this is an important point. One cannot properly obey that which one has not clearly heard. You cannot be obedient to God unless you have heard clearly His commands. I stayed last night with uh, the Edwards family. I'm sure that if Ronnie were to 
give some sort of uh, instruction to his daughters. If they were playing around and they weren't listening, right, and they're running around and they're, they're just ignoring dad, well, they're probably going to be unsuccessful in accomplishing whatever task Ronnie had just told them to do. And they're probably going to get a spanking. Amen? Right? They're going to go into timeout and they're going to get, you know, they're going to go in the corner and be quiet for five minutes. Right? You can't obey if you don't listen. Otherwise, you're doing the will of your own heart. And this is what stands out about Jesus' ministry, is that his ear was constantly attuned to the will of the Father. Jesus, from the time he was a child, is in the temple, discoursing with the Pharisees, teaching, because he says, I have to be in my Father's house. Jesus is studying the scriptures, and as he matures, he is beginning to understand as he gives himself over to the will of God, oh, these scriptures are about me. And God has sent me to accomplish his purposes. And I understand what I must do, and I must do it faithfully. He goes out onto the Mount of Temptation. And it's no coincidence that he's there for 40 days because... The Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. And what is he tempted with? Turn these stones into bread. No. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Right? It's just like the Israelites who, in the wilderness, they're receiving bread from God, but they're not listening to the actual bread of God through His Word. Our hearts are hard. So what happens? Thousands slaughtered in the wilderness. A whole generation of people don't get to see the promises of God because they were too stubborn. Right. There's more than simply hearing clearly that was characteristic of Jesus' faithfulness um, over God's house, though. His obedience was characterized by the sincerest desire of Christ's heart to obey the will of the Father which he accomplished perfectly in his own bodily sacrifice on the cross. In Christ, we find intention and commitment being fully integrated. Intention of the heart and commitment being fully integrated in Christ. The Levitical priests made sacrifice because of prescription in the law, but their hearts weren't desirous of God's will. You can do what God prescribes, but you can desire the contrary, and that does not equate to faithfulness before God. Christ combines, perf- Christ combines perfect desire with perfect sacrifice in order to demonstrate perfect obedience, resulting in perfect faithfulness. Let me say that again. Christ combines perfect desire with perfect sacrifice in order to demonstrate perfect obedience, resulting in perfect faithfulness. So, what does it mean to know that we have a faithful high priest? The intent behind this preacher's writing, this sermon of Hebrews, was to bring forth a commitment to leave behind the things of this world and to radically walk in obedience 
to the one whose superiority, faithfulness, and mercifulness towards his children demands it. He demands it. There is no greater authority to which our obedience and trust ought to be given. There is no one higher to whom we ought to have a more attentive ear. There's no one because He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy. We must demonstrate that we're indeed the Son's faithful house by proving our faithfulness. In the case of a house church, to whom the Hebrews writer makes this address, this called for extreme courage in the face of persecution. It'll mean the same for us, but today perhaps it simply looks like integrating the desires of your heart with an attentive ear to the Lord's commands. That's the essence of faithfulness. We're not always going to be facing persecution. We're not always going to have the threat of martyrdom lingering over us like some do in the world. Indeed, they take up the cross of Christ. And they're faithful as the Son was faithful should they maintain their confession. But for us, faithfulness looks like transforming the desires of our heart and conforming it to the will of the Father. But not only having the desire of our heart, but combining that and meeting it with intentionality and following obediently to His commandments. The two have to go in tandem. Faith does not exist without obedience. But faith also doesn't exist without a desire to pursue the will of God. So, it's going to be a short sermon. I hope that's okay. But, in conclusion, we have to recognize that, as I said last week, Christ is not merely enthroned in the heavens awaiting the moment of His return. Christ is active in the throne room of grace. He is active. He's continually making prayer. He's continually making supplication on our behalf in the presence of the Father. Like I said last week, bearing our names upon His heart, upon His shoulders, our guilt upon His own head. Bringing us as remembrance before the Lord. He sits before the Father as a perfect mediator on our behalf. He mercifully calls us into the presence of God that we might know Him face to face. We have a Savior who knows our sufferings. We have a Savior who comes alongside us to bring us help through trial and temptation because He's already endured before us. And we can take this encouragement, this is my hope, that we will take this encouragement to commit faithfully to this walk that we have taken up, that we've already began. Because our faith isn't in vain. Our faith is not in vain. There are promises that are set before us that are guaranteed to us because we've been marked by the Holy Spirit of God. We've already been given this down payment, this deposit that guarantees our future in heaven. And you know if you have it or not. Christ has already gone before us as an example. He showed us that obedience to the Father is possible. 
faithfulness to the Father is possible because He's done it. And that is yet a reality and a promise to be attained. So, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Some of you here that may not be in Christ, may never have been baptized into the Lord's body. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts because today is the day of salvation. There is no other. The moment is now for salvation. Do not be disobedient to the Father who has given you the gift of His own Son that you might be saved. That you might know the peace and the joy of having a high priest that sits in the throne room of God and makes supplication on your behalf. Test the Father, be patient with them because I've been there. What joy that is to know that we have an advocate in heaven. A very real advocate, a very active advocate who is constantly acting towards us in mercy because he loves us. Behind me is a baptistry. I'm sure the water is warm. All it takes is a confession. I want Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life. I want Jesus Christ to be my merciful and my faithful high priest. I want to know that Christ bears my name in remembrance before the Lord. I want to know that I have the hope of eternity with Him. And I want to know what it is to be in His body to have Christ dwell in my heart. And as David comes up and leads us in a song, that invitation is going to stand for any who have indeed heard his voice this morning.